Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Dave's front office is open for business. Our guest is one of the top agents in the world of sports. He represents some of the biggest names in the NBA, and he'll share some of the secrets to his success. And he's standing by. Dave's Front Office is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Our host is Dave Wolf, who has spent a half a century in every conceivable NBA role except owner, but he's working on it. He's been a player, assistant coach, head coach, assistant GM, and GM. As a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, he was once insulted on the court by a ref who called him an Ivy Leaguer. Here's Dave Wall. Welcome to Dave's Front Office, brought to you by Pure Hoops Media. I'm Dave Wall, your host. My guest today is Jeff Schwartz, the top-ranked basketball agent in the world for the sixth straight year and the president and founder of XL Sports Management which is ranked in Forbes' top three most powerful sports agencies the last four years. XL represents 180 clients, including many of the top NBA players, and contracts worth $4 billion. The agency has won the Sports Business Journal's Best in Talent Management Award twice. Jeff, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, and thank you for that, uh, that nice opening. Um, what I want to try and do today is sort of pull back the curtain and talk about how much work really goes into being a successful agent? Because I think a lot of fans assume you show up when there's a contract to be negotiated, you negotiate the deal, and then you don't come back till there's another contract needed. Um, I wanna to touch a little bit on your background. You started out on sort of a, a legal path. You got a law degree from Temple, clerked for a federal bankruptcy judge. Then you joined a law firm in their commercial litigation department, but then sort of a big pivot you joined IMG as an agent in 1992, and you started representing some elite tennis players like Pete Sampras, Martina Hingis. And within eight years, you were named the 15th most influential person in tennis. Was, was joining IMG part of the big master plan or just an opportunity that came up? No, it was, uh, that was something, when I was in law school, I really wanted to get involved in sports, but I didn't know how I wanted to get involved in sports. <clears throat> I thought that I would end up working maybe uh, either for a team or for a league in the legal in, on the legal side of things. Oh, okay. And when I was clerking for a the judge in California, I happened to meet somebody from IMG that ran their hockey division, a guy by the name of Mike Barnett. And I thought, oh, this is a really sharp guy, really interesting what he does. He happened to be Wayne Gretzky's agent along with a number of other predominant uh, well-known hockey players and uh, I asked him if he could help me get an interview with the folks back in Cleveland which was the headquarters of IMG at the time right um, I called this man incessantly <laughs> to try to break into this figure out how I could get an interview with IMG because I was I thought I love sports I like my legal background. How can I put, how can I put the two together? So finally, he, get, he, he connected me with the people back at uh, 
home base of IMG. And after my clerkship was over, I went and interviewed with them. At the same time, I had also accepted a job with this law firm. Um, oh. And I went and started. I didn't know if there was any openings at IMG. I at least wanted to go speak to the people. So I went and started my law firm job. About a year into my law firm job, they called me um, and said that, hey, we have an opening. And I had called them a couple times during the year to see, to see what was going on. And uh, I decided to make the pivot from the legal profession onto the, onto the agenting or into the agenting profession. And I'll give you a quick, funny antidote on that. So as a young tennis agent, uh, and I started in the tennis division there. As a young tennis agent, they had me working on some of the retired uh, players that were still trying to make money, whether it's from appearances or broadcasting. And one of the particular players they wanted me to meet with was Vitas Gerolites. I don't know if you remember Vitas. He was I remember the name. Top three in the world, very charismatic New Yorker, friends with everybody. He and McEnroe were friends. He and Borg were friends. And Connors, he was friends with everyone. So I went out. I flew out to California to meet with him. And the first thing he said to me was, let me get this straight. You're a lawyer and you became an agent. So you went from the second lowest profession in the world to the lowest profession in the world. <laughs> and that's, that was my introduction to the, to the sports world. Well, that was a boost in your confidence. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So then in, in uh, 2002, you founded Excel. Yes. Um, what made you want to go out on your own at that point? Just you, you felt comfortable and knowing like the sports kind of milieu. Of yeah, I, I think that IMG was an amazing training ground. Um, and, I, and I really enjoyed working there, but it was very, uh, it was very linear in the sense that you did what you, whatever, you know, I was in the tennis division and that's where, that was, those were my responsibilities. I just had an interest in getting involved in a second sport. And, and I thought there were, I thought there were, the sports world was growing internationally. I always liked the NBA. And I, and as I looked at it, I thought, Here's an opportunity to not only um, work in a sport where the international part of the sport is growing a lot. And I understood that side. I understood international sports from the tennis world because so much of my business was international with tennis. But I also thought there was an opportunity to do something different with NBA players on endorsements than had been done traditionally with team sport agents. I came from the tennis world, which was predominantly... 75% of an athlete's money was made off the court in tennis on the marketing side. I wanted to bring that same aspect to the basketball world where you may not, you may not be able to do national deals for every single player, but there's, you can do regional stuff, you can do national, and probably for some guys you can do global. And I really wanted to, I, I wanted to take, I wanted a basketball player to understand there was a lot more to their person than just the shoe contract and a trading card deal and the, and the, and the team contract. Right. Um, and so that was my thought going into the NBA other than liking the NBA. And for a number of years, I did tennis and basketball together, but after about four years, I, a, I was never home because the tennis circuit was sort of like from May all the way through September. And then basketball started October through Right. Through, through, through May or June. Um, to me, 
I loved what I saw from the growth on the basketball side. And I thought once my current tennis players retired, I wasn't going to sign any more tennis players and I was going to focus solely on basketball. Do you remember who your first basketball client was? Oh yeah, sure. Lamar Odom. Oh, okay. Lamar. So my first five clients in basketball, and because I always think of them together, um, actually let's say the first three, and they all happened within a year, which is a little crazy. Lamar, Jason Kidd, and Paul Pierce were oh, my not first. A bad, not a bad group. No, by the way, <laughs> I was too naive to understand what, what, what I had just achieved. Not uh, a bad group. Yeah, two out of three being Hall of Famers is not yeah. bad. Um, and then in 2011, you expanded Excel more into a multi-sport agency. Yes. Uh, Casey Close uh, for the baseball guys brings in like the Derek Jeter level and then right. Mark Steinberg with Tiger Woods and other, other golf guys. Um, what was your thinking here? Just the fact that you could really expand your company? Yeah, so I had been thinking for years, I wanted to, I wanted to diversify the company and get into, I knew we, we could be good at any sport we were representing people in. We do, we do an excellent job at it. Um, Casey and Mark were both my friends from IMG. We actually started three weeks apart at IMG in 92, all down the hall from each other. Uh, and both were good friends of mine. We took different paths. I left IMG. Um, Mark stayed for 19 years there. But when he was thinking of leaving, I talked to him about, and it was, it was great timing because Casey and Mark came in at the same time. Casey was leaving one company. Mark was still at IMG and leaving. And I talked to both of them about Let's create a multi-sport agency that also has a large corporate presence too. Let's get into corporate consulting. Let's get into properties representation. Let's, let's do other things that now being a multi-sport agency is going to allow us open doors for us to do. So that was the thinking when I brought, when I brought them in. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that, that most fans don't understand is your company does a lot more than just yeah. negotiate contracts for players. You guys deal with uh, strategy and, and advisory services, sponsorship, rights holders, and things like that. Um, and you've done things not only with players, but teams, leagues, corporate events. And, and I, I'd like to just tell me a few of those things, because I think that will surprise a lot of the listen, uh, listeners. Yeah. So, you know, from the, from the agent side, let's call it the in we look at our company and we break it up into talent, brands, and properties. That sort of, if you wanted to put it in a little bow tie and a little neat uh, uh, package. Um, and on the talent side, it's basketball, baseball, golf, but it's also, we have a, what we call a, a talent marketing division. If you're not in those three, call it core sports, right? but you're a big enough personality, we will represent you for your, all of your, off-field, off-court, just branding opportunities. Right. So, for example, um, we we have the gentleman's name that runs is named Alan Zucker, and he's represented the Mannings their whole career. So Peyton Manning and Eli Manning are both clients. Archie Manning is a client. Okay. Joe Montana is a client. Um, uh, Justin Herb Herbert, uh, the, the rookie of the year in the NFL. Um, Trevor Lawrence signed with us this year. Uh, Danica Patrick represented her for, for her racing career. And our probably our biggest outlier is we work with Taylor Swift. We do all her marketing. 
uh, know that. whether it's for when she's on tour or uh, and finding the you know title sponsor for her tour or for marketing her personally um, and and then a number of where we work with um, a number of wellness people we work with health health and wellness like whether maybe it's a Peloton instructor that's that's branching out or um, or a chef that's branching out so that's in our talent marketing division. We have a speakers bureau also where we represent people for their speaking engagements. And they could be clients of ours for that we represent for you know all of their endeavors, or it could just be someone that is a client on our speakers bureau. So um, Robin Roberts is a client of ours there, and Bill Belichick's a client right. there, and and uh, and many, many others. Um, and then if you move over to the corporate side of the business, we're in, as you said, advisory work. So what we used to call corporate consulting, we now call brand marketing, advising companies, corporations on their spend in sports. You know, should they be doing this sponsorship deal? Is there a naming rights opportunity that, that could come up? Um, is there an event they want us to create that they want to brand? Is there a product they're bringing to market and they're trying to hit a certain demographics? And nowadays, analytics is playing such a big role in this, using analytics to help them determine which way they want to go. Um, we also are representing a number of teams and leagues. And just from an NBA perspective, we've been involved in a number of the patch deals on the jerseys. Um, and Or uh, we're doing something with the NFL right now on, on a couple of the major stadiums uh with stadiums and and so large sponsorship deals there um if you think about this last year what the match that could that got put on now there's been the match one the match two and the match three with tiger and phil and the second one had um with brady right. and then charles barkley so that was something that our company we we put that on and we're, and we're going to continue doing more and more events we did another event uh Right before the pandemic, we did an event in Japan in the golf world. So we're trying to, we're, we're doing a lot of other things right now outside of the athlete representation, but athlete representation will always be core to, to what we do also. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting because I think a lot of the things you just mentioned, most people don't like connect you or your agency with because they just don't know that those things are negotiated by you or set up. Kind exactly, of exactly. So yeah. we've brought in some like, you know, this has been a, labor of love growing Excel uh, over 20 years now. And we brought in some great executives that are running each of these different divisions. Um, and it's been fun to see, it's been really fun and I'm proud of the culture of our company and I'm proud of what we've accomplished. And it's also great to see, it's no longer, it's not just about Casey, Mark and me. We've got a number of, of really, top level executives running a number of these different different divisions. Um, when you started out about 20 years ago with NBA players with Lamar, did you ever imagine that the salaries could get to the 35, 45 million range for the top players, but not just the top players, the average player salary is now about 10 million yeah. and the minimum salary is a million. I think when I when I came in in 1971, the minimum salary was like nineteen thousand dollars. I know. I mean, imagine that, that, these numbers. No, I, I don't think anyone like. No, I, I said I, if I said I could have, I, I would not be telling the truth. No, I did not. 
I did not see salaries getting to this level. Um, and I think that it's, I don't think I ever totally appreciated to maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, where, what was gonna happen with media rights and, and, and how that was going to explode. Right. Because there was a piece and, and Dave, you remember where sort of team values sort of stagnated yeah. for a while, right? They stagnated. And, and now the exponential growth as you're seeing, um, and it's, it's still a little mind blowing, I, I have to say, when you see the values come out of, of some of the franchises, but what you're seeing, there's the platform of the distribution channels now are continued to grow. Right. And there's more and more opportunity for not only the league um, to create greater distribution, but the players individually. And I think all that has played into why salaries have, have reached a new level and, and hopefully will continue to go up based on the, you know, the next negotiation and right. some of the new, call it uh, media providers, the streaming services right. that, that, have, that have come into play. Uh, each year, you get a chance to sign some of the top potential draft picks. Um, this year, you're going to represent Cade Cunningham of Oklahoma State, who's projected in many polls to go number one. How do you decide which players you want to try and recruit, Jeff? First thing is, I, I, I really, it's important to me how they are as people. I mean, after this many years, and, and you know this from, from running a team, like character is so important. So yes. That's something I, I think a lot about. What, what's the person like? What's the family like? Um, because in our business, in, in my business, the agency business, we're not making a product. We're not creating widgets. All we have is the time that we're going to put into someone and give them direction and counsel them. And, and hopefully they'll listen. Uh, and it's very hard. And I learned that early, early on that if you, if you represent people that never listen, there's, there's no point to do it. So that's part of it, obviously, skill level. Uh, you know, for us, we always want to try to represent the, uh, the best of the best. And it's sometimes it's relationships. And after doing this for so many years, you know, you know lots of people, you know, coaches, you know, people from the shoe companies, you know, um, um, trainers out there, and, 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 and also getting to know families. I think one of the good things that we've done is. We have a, an excellent reputation and, and at, the end, at some point, a family will say, you know what, we want to speak to someone from Excel. And, and so we're going to get that initial meeting. Now, what happens from there all depends. Um, but I, I look at, you know, the type of person, I look at the skill level um, and, and then I look at also, do we have an ability to make the right contact with the person. Sometimes a cold call doesn't always work. So right. how do we get in the door to meet someone from their family? Um, so let's say you get your foot in the door and you're gonna get a meeting. Who's usually in that first meeting? Is it the player and just his parents? Are there, or are there more people from their side? You know, it all depends. Some, and it's changing a lot. I mean, as kids are not always taking the traditional path to going to college and changing, but it depends on what the family usually wants. So a lot of times a single family, uh, like a mom may not feel like she has all of the expertise to 
to know so they'll they may have some other family member in or they may ask someone from the school i mean I, we have i have met with everybody from the head coach to the dean of a school to the uh, to a lawyer from that school to the head of the business department from a school um and then a lot of times families will bring in a family friend that might be a business person who they want to sit in the meeting. Many times the, the, the players themselves are not in the initial meetings. Oh, it's, interesting. Yeah, it, it's a family trying to assess who they want to have meet their son at some point during the season or at the, when the season is over. Right. Um, so it really depends. Um, George Raveling told me that when he was recruiting high school players as a college um, assistant coach, he felt that in any meeting, if he won the mom, he won the he won the kid. Yeah. Did, yeah. Do you feel that way when the mom's sitting there? Like if I win the mom, the mom's no, gonna I, you know what? I, this is what I think. Um, and 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 I tell my younger agents this: there is a big difference when you're recruiting from high school for college and 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 who's making that decision to go to college. And I really do think moms play a huge role right. in, in that. In the end, going from college to the NBA, I think it depends on, on the family and the circumstances. Moms are super important and, and I always wanna have a great relationship with, with a mom, but you're, not prob you're probably not going to sign that player unless you actually develop some type of connection with the player themselves at the end. Like they're not gonna rely on their family the same, they'll rely on their family, but maybe not to the same level that they did for college. So you really have to make a connection with the player themselves whenever you're given that opportunity to meet with them. What goes into your preparation for the presentation in that first meeting? And then if you do get a meeting with the player, because you know, the, the draft pick salary is, is pretty set in a slot for his first sure. well, four years, I guess, if they pick up options. And so what's your pitch to the family? How do you prepare yourself for, uh, with your staff to go into those meetings? We have a really extensive presentation and it's not so much about the salary because it's not right. negotiating that initial salary other than making sure they get everything they're entitled to in, in that rookie contract. It's more about what happens around the team, right? That, that young player having the guidance of somebody that's been through this and understanding what goes in to make sure, because at the end, at the end of the day, and, and you'll appreciate this, that no matter how good a relationship and how much a GM or coach might like a player, the coach and the GM are gonna do what's best for the team. That, right. that, that's their job. So I always have to look out for the player and make sure we're doing what's best for the player. So for a young player and a young family that's never been through this, the most important part of that job in the initial two or three years on court is making sure that everything is going right for the player. Not talking about the salary, but is it the right team? Is he getting an opportunity? I mean, how many calls from agents have you gotten over the years talking about minutes? said one thing and now the, the, the opposite is happening there and my player isn't getting enough minutes or um, maybe this is not the right situation and we need to talk about trading him. And so it's everything that goes around it. But part of that is me also managing their expectations because I know the reality of it, what's supposed to happen. And, and making, so making sure that whatever is being coming out of the team, I'm translating it 
to the player and the family so they understand the big picture on, on what's happening. So that's part of it. The other side is everything you can do, especially if you're signing a top pick, what I started this conversation with is the endorsements and the opportunities now that players have more than ever to talk directly to their fans. And how are we helping them with that? How are we helping them communicate through social media, through digital marketing, through, through other content opportunities, and then traditional endorsement opportunities? And there's a lot that goes into that now. You know, you have players that come out of high school with millions of followers and that never happened before. So what are we doing to enhance that for them? That's a big part of it also. Yeah, because one of the questions I was going to ask you is how um, the internet and social media has really changed your business because you know one of the things with uh, just a kid let's say cunningham you know in one poll he could be number one another poll he could be number five how do you manage the family's expectations in the draft when every day they can pick up a different poll yeah. for somebody who may know nothing about basketball but is right right i tell i tell families to stay off of social media <laughs> during the draft process it's really hard because you know people can be so cruel on social media also yeah. Uh, and, and so for me, um, I always try to say, and, and, and our other agents, like, we're going to get you the real information. Don't worry about what it says on social media. Don't, don't worry about that stuff. When, when uh, your, your aunt from uh, Kansas calls up to say she read this piece and that you're falling to number 17, like, don't it just ignore all of that. And we're going to get you the real information on, on what you need to know. And, and and how people are really thinking about you. And I think, again, be probably because of maybe credibility or, or just doing this for so long, most people listen to that. Right. Now, what you, you've had a number of rookies in your career. Um, what do you think is the one thing most rookies are not prepared for coming into the NBA? Yeah, the, the, the hectic pace of it. They think they are, and whether you're a junior or a senior, and by the way, that that's more the minority now than, than coming out as a sophomore or freshman. I always tell when I'm meeting with them, I, I talk about you may play 35 to 38 games in college, right? You may play 100 games in the NBA between preseason and the playoffs. And as much as I can tell you, you're going to be prepared. You're not going to be prepared for what's going to happen that first year. You're going to wake up in hotels and not know what city you're in. And so I think it's the pace of the, the league um, that is very difficult. And the other piece is young players think they work hard and then and they realize there's a whole nother level to working hard right. that sometimes it's a struggle to get them over that hump. Uh, but I think that's the other side where young players aren't prepared for not every single young player, but a, a number of them of what it is going to take to become a great pro in the NBA. You know, that leads into another question too, because sometimes a player will ask you, just as you mentioned, he's upset with his situation. He's not getting minutes. Um, he's been put back on the bench instead of being a starter. And the player comes to you and says, hey, you got to call the coach or the GM because, and complain, okay? How do you deal with that when you're hearing the opposite a little bit, that it's his poor attitude, lack of work ethic, or he's falling in love with the nightlife yep. rather than falling in love with basketball? I'm very direct with guys. Um, and I think that's why we've had such a great relationship of 
you know, I said to my first five clients, they're still clients today, you know, 20 something years later. Um, I'm always going to tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And I think that directness is, uh, I'm not calling the team because you're not, you're, this is on you. You have to turn X, Y, and Z around. And by the way, I will probably know that before they even make the call to me. And I'm already talking to them about that. I, I, I try to be, always be very objective with this because if I'm always crying wolf to you as a team, you're going to stop listening to me. Right. So I try to not call a lot. And when I do call, I want it to be, I want it to be meaningful. Um, but I have no issue telling the guys that because that's not, it's not going to help them if I don't tell them. They may get mad at me. Uh, you know, you brought up Paul in the beginning. Paul Pierce, when Paul was young, he wouldn't speak for, to me for weeks at a time because he was mad what I was saying to him. But, you know, 22 years later, he's still my client because I think he respected it. And he knew that I was only coming at it for his own good, but he just didn't want to hear it at that moment. Now, usually after you sign a player, um, you end up trying to bring him in workouts, development coaches, you know, you put him up with a couple other guys, but the pandemic like threw a lot of those routines, like oh. it was crazy because of just the timing change because everybody was used to a certain, you know, timing in the NBA. Yes. How, did, how did that really, I mean, how did you deal with it? Were, it were there pretty, no, calls, <laughs> no workouts? Yeah, so it, it was crazy. So last year, um, we ended up, I'll work backwards from this. We, we ended up with five, we, we had five of the top 19 picks in the draft right. uh, in 2020. Uh, and most of that was done, signing those guys was done virtually. It was the weirdest thing ever. Like, you know, normally we're in homes, we're meeting right. with people and we did it, we did it all virtually. Um, and once the guys were signed, I would normally bring them to wherever we're going to hold our pre-draft process. For many years, it was in Westchester, New York, um, and now it's in Miami. And couldn't bring anybody anywhere. So what we were trying to do is help the guys figure out locally where they could work out um, while we were still trying to figure out what the league was doing. Because if you remember, if you go back to um, April or May, there really weren't, the league wasn't saying what they were going to do. We didn't know when the bubble, if there would be a bubble. We didn't know if and when the draft would be. We didn't know, is there going to be a Chicago? Are they going to not have a Chicago? I mean, at the end, everything got canceled. Um, and the process of players leaving school, I guess school probably in March when the pandemic hit, you know, schools shut down, season shut down, and having them all the way from March through November right. <laughs> was crazy. Um, and we kept thinking, can we do a, 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 a smaller version of our process and have groups of guys, maybe four guys in one place, maybe in New York, four guys in Miami, couple guys in LA. And at the end of the day, nothing worked, nothing. We couldn't figure out anything because you couldn't get gyms. Places were still closed, right? Everywhere was closed. We're like, okay, if we bring four guys together and one person has COVID and they give it to the other three, like, how is this all going? So it was um, a logistical, it was a logistical nightmare. 
But at the end of the day, we did figure out teams at some point were allowed to take certain visits, right, to go see players. They could take up to 10 visits each team. But that was also complicated because if you had three guys, three of your, let's say you had three players in a gym and a team showed up and they only wanted to see one of those players. If all three were in the gym, the NBA counted that as three visits. Now the team only had seven visits left. So you had to ask two players, you got to leave the gym while this, while this, it, it was all really. Be a math major to figure it out. <laughs> yes. Um, but at the end, we decided finally, like, we can't bring guys together. We'll just keep them working out in their individual regions where they are um, and help them with the workouts, like continue to send what they should be doing, monitor it that way. And we got, and we got through it. You know, nobody took team visits, right? No one flew to teams to see anybody. Certain players, teams would go and see them. And then we finally had a virtual draft in November. So it was, it was such, because the draft kept moving. First, the draft was going to be in September. Then it was going to be in October. And then I think, it, I, I think it moved to November. I can't even remember now. I have pandemic brain. I don't remember things a year <laughs> from a year ago. Well, you know, we think we're, we think we're kind of at the getting, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and then I'm sure you saw the news about CP3 goes into the protocols. I just saw it. I did not. It was he. What I don't know was it was it tracing. He was in contact, or or did he test? Do we know anything? Yeah, I don't think there's been much that has come out about that. But it's like the NBA's, I think, worst nightmare and Kawhi knee injury and. I mean, you, you've heard from a lot of your players probably during the bubble and everything, but then starting the season, I thought on such short notice, you know, the injuries for a lot of the all-star players were up. They came out the other day, I think up 19%, uh, highest yeah. ever. Yeah. And now Kawhi's gonna miss another game. So were you getting some feedback from some of the players that this was just so hard to go into the next season, you know, after such a coming out of the bubble? As hard as the as hard as finishing the season was, because remember in 1920 season, we got most of the season in before the pandemic hit. So finishing the season in the bubble seemed very kind of it was, it was neat. It was a process, it was orderly. I thought, it's just my feeling, why why are we gonna start the next season so soon? Why don't we wait till February or March and see where things are? I think the league really wanted to get the 21-22 season, the season that's coming up, back on track. So they so they pushed it. And I think it's been really hard for the players. I mean, all the things, and, and I don't know that people recognize all the different things. So not only was there a shortened, for the players that were in the bubble and that went far in the playoffs, it was a, it was a protracted off season, right? So they right. didn't have a lot of time start up in December and all of the protocols that have been in place this whole season until vaccinations, you're getting tested twice a day for the COVID tests every day, early in the morning. And then once again, later in the day, that hurts player sleep, like your sleep patterns, not getting, so not only did you not get enough of an off season, but you're not getting enough sleep games, you know, games are, closer together than they would have been. There's not as many off days. All of this hurt guys and, and players, they really haven't complained a lot, but I know 
that they can't, you know, they're looking forward to this season being over. It has been a very, very difficult season for them. When, when you have a player who's about to become a free agent, um, how do you manage the expectations, let's say with a player who thinks he's played well enough to get a max, your max contract, and you know the market doesn't value him that high. I, I just remember Isaiah Thomas talking about backing up the Brinks truck when he was having you know, a great year with the Celtics. How do you, yeah. how do you manage those expectations with him? That never, Dave, that never happens. <laughs> that, that never, um, you've got to get on it early. You can't, you know, I always tell players with free agency, I want to start talking about it. I, I'm, we're not going to start talking about it. So normally free agency is July 1 this year. I think it's right. August 2nd. We're not going to talk about it at the end of July, right before August 2nd. We're talking about it now. I want them to understand where the world is. Players don't always think about where the, uh, where the world is in the sense of what, what are the economics of the league this year? You know, right. where are teams? How much money has been lost? Where's, where's the cap? How is this fitting? You know, how much space do teams actually have? I try to show the players the reality of what the market's going to look like because the market has a rhythm to it also. Some years, there's going to be much more money and there's going to be a couple waves where players make money. Some years, there's not a lot of money and it's going to be one wave and, and, then, and then that's it. And so for me, I want the guys prepared really early because it doesn't always sink in so fast to their, they, they, they're not believing it necessarily for them might be, might affect another player, but it's not going to affect them. Right. And so I sort of pounded into their heads for a few months before free agency actually happens um, because I want them to understand the reality. So when it does actually happen, they can't say we hadn't talked about it a lot. And, most people, most of the guys, if you explain it and explain it and explain it and, and break it down for them, so they, rather than just saying it, break it down on paper, show them, they get it. Most of them, most of them get it. Now, if you have multiple teams, let's say, that are interested in one of your players, do you sit down with the player, and especially if he's got a family, and try and discuss uh, the most important priorities for them besides the money, let's say, you know, whether it's schools or being close to other family members sure. or just they want to live in a different city um, to see what uh, team might be the best fit for them? Yes, there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's not just the money. It, it's, I mean, many times players will take a little less money to go somewhere else than take the most money to, to go to a team they don't want to go to. So it's, if a player's married and has kids, absolutely family life comes into it. Again, I think that people don't think like when players are traded in the middle of a year, it has such an effect on families. And or when a player is a free agent and then moves his family and someone and the kids are happy in school in the current city that they're in and, and, and player's wife has lots of friends, it's hard to like it has a big effect on people. So family is is a big part of it. Um, where the team is in their life cycle, right? What, and what I mean by that is. Are they a rebuilding team? Are they a real playoff team? Are they trying to get into the playoffs? So depending on the player's age and where they are, you have to take, you have to take that into account also. Um, the history of the team, you know, are they a team that is a, as a, as a winning culture or is this a team that's just throwing money at you? And so all of these things go into play. Um, and then 
players have their own feeling on teams themselves, on what they might like out of a certain team. Maybe there's a team that has a couple of his friends on it that a player wants to play with. Um, and that team's offering less than another team that doesn't have anyone and is maybe in a city where the player wants to live. So all, all goes into the, uh, into the soup that we'll mix around and hopefully get, it, it's gonna taste good at the end. Um, you know, one thing you brought up was the, kind of the cycle the team's in. And so if you have a player and, and let's say as an example would be maybe Blake, you know, um, he's on a team, they're not a playoff team. They're really starting a rebuilding cycle. So it doesn't really fit where he is in his career. So now you have a chance to have a buyout for a player. Are players usually surprised by how much money they may have to surrender to, to get bought out and go somewhere else? Yeah, you know what? It bothers me, I think, sometimes more than it bothers the players. When they want out, they want out. You know, the, like, I think that in, in situations where a lot goes into this also, if it's a player that's been really good about his money and has saved a lot of money and is thinking about their future, because I think the way players think about it is, okay, I'm going to take a buyout. I'm going to probably, you know, I may lose some, I'm going to lose some money but I'm also going to be re-energized to go play somewhere. And then I will have some years to make that money back after that. So that's part of it also. I don't think, when I have a buyout conversation with a player, I'm, I tell them right off the bat, here's what you're probably gonna lose. So you need to understand that before you even want me to go have this conversation. Do you find that a player like, like Blake at, at his probably his zenith was one of the top players in the league. And now he's going to have to adopt a different role coming yep. off the bench. Now it's changed for him now because of their injuries and he's starting lately. Yeah. But, but is that a topic that comes up trying to convince them, hey, do you understand if we're going to sign here, your role is going to be different? What environment for you? It's not only with a buyout situation, but it's with players as they get older, like just talking to them, what that you know, the last one to accept that all in all of us, like we all feel great and we think we can do the same things that we could do, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, and so for somebody like Blake or another player, I mean, I, I had a similar situation with LaMarcus Aldridge this year, right off the Spurs onto the nets. It's talking about that stuff. Do you understand, you know, do you guys realize what, what your new role is going to be? Are you ready to accept that? And, and are you, not only are you ready to accept it, but are you ready to, um, how do I want to say this? It's not just accept the role, but it's also deal with everything else that you're no longer, if you're no longer the star somewhere, right. dealing with everything else that comes with that. Not only the role you play on the court, but everything that sort of goes in around that. And, I will tell you, like for me, Blake has been unbelievable for them, even, you know, off the bench in the role he has played. Uh, he has been he's been really important for that team. Yeah. One of the things uh, from the coaching side, we've always talked about when you bring players in and they have to change roles is become a star in your role. Right. It might be less of a role, but you can become a star in that role. And, and Blake, Blake seems to have, have understood that, certainly, because he's done a great job in Brooklyn. Now, you know, 
you know all the GMs because you've dealt with probably all of them for the most part. Some have been there for a long time. Sometimes you get new ones. So when you go into a negotiation, do you sort of have an idea like, I know what he's going to use against me, whether it's analytics or statistics, or he doesn't like the way the guy dresses or whatever. And, and you kind of prepare your negotiations differently with different GMs? I think that human nature is different with everybody. And so, yes, I will think about how this certain GM might look at something versus opposed to how another GM looks at something. So you can't go, it, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not one size fits all on the negotiation side. You have to think about it differently. And, and some are just, some are easier to deal with and some are just more difficult to deal with, but you, fi you figure it out. Um, and, and I think the, to be a good negotiator on either side, you have to understand both sides. And so, yes. Do you have a negotiation that you remember was probably either your most difficult or your most complex? Oh gosh, um, there's probably been a number of them. I don't, I think the hardest negotiations aren't usually the free agent ones. The hardest negotiations are usually the extension negotiations. When a young player is in his third year and his third year is over, um, and you can do a deal with the current team that they're on. I always find those to be the most difficult negotiations. And I don't know if I have, I mean, I, I've, I've got lots of examples where I haven't gotten, I've gotten the deals done and I have lots of examples where I haven't gotten the deals done. And I've told the player we need to wait until his next year, until he's a free agent, because the last thing I ever want to do is negotiate a deal just to get a deal done and then the players in that deal and then they end up being not happy i always tell them you're going to be happy for about two weeks that we got that deal done so let's not do that let's wait for your market value and that's just the hardest time in that third year because the team says hey we'll do this early right we'll do this deal early um, but you got to give us a little break unless he's just a superstar and then they know they just have to pay him um, but I don't, I can tell you a funny story on, on, sure. on, on a third year negotiation and it involved Kevin Garnett and uh, Al Jefferson. Um, <clears throat> Garnett got traded right from Minnesota to Boston and Al Jefferson was this young player in the trade back to Minnesota. He played a great third year for them right. and, they wanted to, and they wanted to extend him. So that summer I started talking to uh, Kevin McHale and, and Glenn Taylor was also, the owner was involved, uh, was involved also. And so we're talking all summer and they asked me the number, what, what I wanted. And I kept telling them, look guys, I want 65 million. I'll always remember this story. I want $65 million and I want 5 million in bonuses on top of that. So to get out of 70 million and we're talking about a lot of years ago. So that was a, that was a big deal. At, right. at that time. And the team kept talking about $50 million. We'll pay out $50 million. And I think, and this started in, call it, I guess, July. We went through August. Um, and we could negotiate all the way up to Halloween because that was the start of the season. So we had, so went into September. I remember Glenn Taylor did an article in the paper and said how difficult I was being. And, and Al's uncle, who was the patriarch of the family, called me and said, hey, Jeff, we're from Prentice, Mississippi. $50 million is a lot of money. I said, 
I think Uncle Seroy. I said, Uncle Seroy, I, I get it, but your nephew is not going to be happy if we end up doing that deal. So we go all the way through September and they moved up to 55 million. We get to the day before Kevin calls me. I said, Kevin, the number still, I haven't moved. The number is $65 million and 5 million in bonuses. We get to the day of, about five o'clock that day, he and Glenn Taylor call me and said, Jeff, is that still your number? Yes, we can't get there. We can give you 55 million and, 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 there were some, and we'll throw in some bonuses on top of that. Right. I'm like, sorry guys, we're not, we're not gonna get a deal. I'd call Al that night, maybe six, seven o'clock that night. And I said, Al, sorry, they're not gonna get there. And I don't recommend you signing at this, at this number. I just don't think you'll be happy. He said, Jeff, I trust you. I'm not going to do it. I'm bummed out. No deal happens. I mean, there's no deal at this moment. So we only have till 11.59 that evening to get something on the commissioner's desk. I'm in a restaurant having dinner with my wife and maybe it's 8.30 at night, maybe closer to nine. Kevin and, and uh, Glenn call me again. They say, can you step outside and talk to us? I said, sure. Jeff, what's your number? What's it going to take to get this done? I said, guys, I already told Al we're not doing this. It's 65 million plus 5 million bonuses. All right, give us 10 minutes. They call back. We accept. <laughs> so I call Al. It's literally 10 o'clock at night now. Right. Or 9.30 at night. I call Al. He answers the phone. I call him a couple times, finally answers. Sounds groggy. I'm like, what's the matter? He said, I went to bed early. I was depressed. I went to sleep. I said, I need you to get dressed and go down to the arena, but don't get out of your car because I still have to negotiate the contract, but they've accepted the money. Now I've got to get the bonuses done and I've got to get everything done. So just go sit in your car at the arena. Well, by... 11.15 or 11.30, the contract was finally done. Oh, that's funny. You know, you mentioned before, every player seems, and, and we went through these interviews when I was a coach in Chicago, where you, you know, you'd talk to a bunch of kids uh, for the draft. Every one of them wants to develop their brand now. Yes. And, but how do you help your players understand the power of social media and especially Twitter? Because we've seen yeah. so many guys that press that Twitter button and then all of a sudden realize, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, you know, you know what? It, absolutely. They don't even know. I, I think players are way more savvy and sophisticated to it now than, you know, five, seven years ago. I'm, I'm, I don't think you see as many, whoops, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have hit that button. But um, we spend a lot of time on that now. I mean, just the ability of players to talk directly to their fans uh, and to sponsors and to um, just a, a growing community that, that they're creating is, is a big deal. So I have people that run social media for us, that are running digital marketing, and we spend lots of time talking to them about what they want to achieve out of social media for them, what, what they're trying to do with it. Because everybody talks about wanting to have a brand, but if you break that down, what does that really mean? What does that mean for you? Um, and so... As a young player coming into the league, that's, that is something we spend a lot of time on, talking to them about how they should use social media to not only engage their fans, but to help on the whole marketing side uh, for them. And um, I think 
I think that it's it's imperative that the, the, the all the stakeholders that deal with players make sure players understand the power of social media and what they can do. And I think for the most part, players they do understand it, but getting them to understand how to use it most effectively and efficiently is 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 what we will spend time on with them. Jeff, you know, mental health issues have come to the forefront recently for a lot of the professional athletes. And I'm I'm sure you saw Naomi Osaka struggle with her anxiety and you know, miss a tournament media session, then she dropped out of the next one. Um, you have a player like Kevin Love who has gone public with a lot of his issues and sure. has had some recent issues that cropped up. Have you given some thought, especially having dealt with tennis early in your career, is, is there a way to structure these media requirements uh, or change them so it could better suit players that do have some of these issues and, and not make them feel like they're gonna get you know, punished for, for these type of things. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when, when, when Naomi uh, withdrew from the tournament because of inciting mental health issues, it made me think back of all my days in the tennis world. Um, and when a player plays a grueling match and comes off the court and then right. gets bombarded with all of these, a lot of times questions that you just, you look at the reporter and think, did you really just ask that question? Um, and I get it. Like in normal times, it's one thing. What we've all just gone through in the last 15, 16 months, it, it's affected everybody. I, I mean, it, it affects everyone. And so I think it's a great time to analyze again how we treat athletes and how, and how whether it's everybody, whether it's how the leagues, um, if it's an individual sport, how the governing bodies of those sports, how the media, how we treat athletes and think about them more from a humanistic side than just a competitor side on, on, um, on what it's, on what life should be, what your responsibilities are other than, and I know you have responsibilities. I mean, look, I heard a number of players say, well, it's part of the job doing, doing media is part of the job. Okay, that's fine, but it doesn't mean that things can't change and 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 make it a, a more humanistic way to make it part of the job. So yeah, Kevin and I talk about mental health and, and well-being a lot. And he's spending lots of time trying to be a really smart mental health advocate. Um, and what can be done to not only to help athletes, but you know, people in general that are having mental health issues. So uh, yes, I do. I think that more will come out of this. I mean, it was such a, it was interesting to see the comments initially and then how the wave changed and how you started seeing people start talking to support her that were initially quiet about it because I think it threw everybody off. Um, and then and then the, 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 the amount of uh, support that she received I think will cause, and you saw the governing bodies of the four grand slams actually come out and say, we're going to address this because that's not how they were acting three or four days prior to that. When she got fined the 15,000 for missing the press conference and they said, well, you do it again, it could end up in the fall. And they changed, their, they changed their attitude totally. You know, with a full service agency that you have now, you, you basically take a player from, let's say, 
his rookie year all the way through retirement and afterwards. So yeah. um, as a player approaches retirement, do you usually suggest possibilities for post-basketball life uh, based on his interests? Or do you review any business or other proposals that are in front of him? Uh, for example, like Boban. When Boban retires, is he going to be a big hit in the entertainment field? Oh, he's gonna, Boban is going to make it in, the, in, in Hollywood. I, 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 awesome. I fully believe this. With his personality, I mean, I've known Boban since he was 17. I, I met him in a small town in Serbia when he was 17 years old. And he was a wonderful, wonderful person then, and he's a wonderful person now. And he is so funny. He doesn't, you know, maybe now he knows he's funny, but back then he didn't know how funny he was. Um, and I do think that, yes, so we as a whole, we players, you know, People say, well, what happens when someone retires? You stop talking to them. I'm like, yeah, I spent 20 years speaking to them. And the day they retire, I'm like, well, thanks. Talk to you in 10 Numbers years. 10. Now. Yeah. No. So we stay very, very involved with our players uh, in their post careers and help them position themselves, whether it's Paul in media or Richard Jefferson in media, um, uh, Jerry Stockhouse coaching, um, Jason Kidd coaching, like, we're going to always stay involved with our players uh, and our, our, our athletes or our clients, I should say, generally. And if there's certain businesses they're interested in, absolutely. We'll review the proposals for them. If there's guidance they want on maybe it's, maybe it's a business or an industry that we don't have a lot of expertise in, we'll find the right people for them to talk to. But we want, I always say I want their post careers to be as dignified as their playing careers. Um, and so that means we're going to stay really involved with them. Is the, is the agency landscape becoming more like the arms race teams have had with practice facilities and arenas? Um, you recently received an investment from Shamrock Capital. So right. what does the additional capital allow you to do? Well, it's just more resources. You know, um, as you grow, the checks get bigger. And, and I want, I, pre-pandemic, I saw opportunities out there. Unfortunately, or, or fortunately, during the pandemic, I saw even more opportunities. And, and so it just helps us to continue to invest back into the business and provide more resources for, for, our, for our clients overall. Do you see a continuing consolidation of smaller agencies being bought by bigger agencies? Because it's just so much harder for the smaller agencies. I do. Really because that, yeah, because of those reasons. I just think it's hard to provide all the resources that um, that clients want these days. So I do think that will continue to happen. So if you look into the future, Jeff, look into your crystal ball, what do you see as the key challenges for the NBA? Do you see ex expansion in the near future? Uh, something uh, like I, I think, listen, I, I think that, I think for any league, it has to continue to grow. So I think expansion will be something that, and you've seen uh, Adam talk about expansion, right? right. That, so I do think expansion will happen. Um, I think one of the big issues is what is really going to happen. It's very murky right now with these young players, these high schoolers, right? right. A lot of them don't want to go to college. So perhaps you have the G League and the G League Ignite team. You have the opportunities to go to Europe. You have, um, you have uh, even high school, you have overtime now for kids that, that want to play in high school. What is going to happen to, and maybe there won't be one path and maybe one size doesn't fit all there also, because I think there's 
different paths for different reasons. But I think the league also has to figure out what are they doing with younger players and, and the whole idea of allowing, if you're going to tell a kid he can go right from high school to the G League, but you're only going to pay him, I forget what the number is. I don't know if it's still $300,000. Yeah, right in that area. Um, which after taxes and everything, and they don't make it, that's not a good result. So I think the league really has to figure out if they want, you know, the, the NBA is the biggest brand, basketball brand in the world. If they want to start looking more like a European model where kids are younger and going to NBA academies and going right into the NBA rather than going to school, a lot more, a lot more has to be done there. Um, and, I'm, and maybe they're looking at it, but I think that's one of the big, the big issues also. The other one is just how people are watching games. Right. going forward i mean that that the fragmentation that's out there how the younger 18 to 34 demographic how they're looking at or even 18 to 25 how they're watching the nba and you know a lot of times you'll talk to people young people and they're like well i might watch a part of a game on my phone but i'm not watching it the same way so figuring that out i think is another big big issue going forward okay. jeff i have one last question for you now you're ranked as the top basketball agent in the world, but you're only fifth overall uh, behind a bunch of soccer agents. And you know, knowing how competitive you are, I'm wondering if you're up in your trainings this season, uh, more miles on the treadmill, more high intensity workouts on the bike. I mean, how are you gonna move up? I'm not sure I can get past those soccer agents. There's something, it's the wild, wild west with, with, with the European soccer agents. Uh, but I, I will, I'm gonna try and, continue to stay very, very competitive in the basketball world. <laughs> Jeff, thanks for spending time with me today on Dave's Front Office, brought to you by Pure Hoops Media. Wishing you good luck in the draft and free agency this offseason. Thanks, Dave. Take care. It was great to be with you. Thanks to my guest, Jeff Schwartz of XL Sports Management. Thanks also to our producer, Bruce Bernstein, and to our editor, Kristen Woolley. We hope you'll check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Mike Wise has a new podcast each Monday, and one of his most recent guests was NFL insider Adam Schefter of ESPN, whose passion for basketball rivals his passion for football. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is here every Wednesday with great NBA and college hoop talk. Buckets, boards, and blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure drops every Thursday. And three-time NBA champion B.J. Armstrong joins Eric Newman with the Pure Hoops podcast every Friday. We also have a lot of great interviews and fun exchanges on our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube and search Pure Hoops Media. We'll see you next time. I'm Dave Wohl. Dave's Front Office with your host, Dave Wohl, is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Pure Hoops Media.